Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. On the show today, we've got Mark deswan Arons. He's the founder at Institute for Real Growth. And on the conversation today, we talk quite a bit about what real growth is intended to do and achieve for all stakeholders, not just profit maximization, and how the Institute for Real Growth is helping marketers and CEOs realize that growth potential. In addition, the Institute for Real Growth has launched a number of initiatives from education to content and webcast series, which we highlight. And I can't stress enough that insight and conversation around growth and the importance of growth for everyone involved. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mark deswan Arons. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to start off with kind of an interesting personal nugget about yourself. I believe you're living up in the Woodstock, New York area. And I'm just curious, as a global exec, I mean, you've, you've lived and worked all around the world. What attracted you to that area in particular? That's interesting. I don't think I've ever had that question before, Alan. Well, you know, it's funny. My co-founder, Frank Vandendriest, the co-founder of the Institute for Real Growth, he once said that he thought Woodstock, perhaps after Chernobyl, is probably the most famous village in the world. 
And I think there's probably some truth to that. I mean, there's a whole backstory of how a friend moved out of New York City and moved upstate and for years told us we should come visit. And then one day we did and we fell in love with the place. And that's why we have now been here for 15 years in the weekends, not uh, full time. But with COVID, we have indeed now been here for, um, for some 14 weeks. And, uh, and Woodstock is a special place. It actually has over a hundred years of history of being what they call patron to the arts. And I think it translates to a vibe that um, sits very well with me. It inspires me. Well, it's a, it does look like a beautiful place. I've only seen pictures. I haven't been there myself, but it, it is probably, to your point, next to Chernobyl, the, uh, one of the most famous villages in the world. <laughs> so uh, that's a funny comparison to put Chernobyl and Woodstock together, but uh, that's what we do here. <laughs> so I know you've had a successful career in marketing. You've, you were first at Unilever early in your career, and then it looks like, I, I believe I got this right, that you founded and, and ran Effective Brands before, before it was sold to WPP and Kantar. Why marketing? Why has marketing been an attraction for you? That's funny. I, um, I actually was telling my children this story just a few weeks ago, because none of my children, the oldest is now 16, and they don't have an inkling of a, an idea of what they want to be when they grow up. And I was pretty much the same. And um, it actually was my first semester at university. I went to university in Rotterdam. So I'm American and Dutch by birth. And um, I went to university in Rotterdam. And the first semester was an absolute disaster. I'd also just moved back from London. So there was the culture shock of moving to, from England to Holland. But also the whole Dutch university system is it's very rigorous. It's completely everyone for themselves. Uh, you are totally expected to um, self-discipline and self-guide. I had none of that. Uh, so the, the first uh, semester exams were, uh, were, uh, were genocide in terms of grades. And my father chose to come to the university, actually, on the first day of the second semester. And while he worked in the library and we had long conversations about the importance of, of success at university, I went to the subjects, to the first classes, basically, of the second semester. And I remember like yesterday, I came back after lunch, after my first lecture, and it had been marketing. And I said to him, now I know what I want to do in life. Interesting. It's funny how, how um, many folks that have had on the show, uh, whether they're CMOs or, or thought leaders, have a similar experience, <laughs> not knowing exactly what they want to do. And it's usually at university where they get the spark to business or marketing in some form or fashion. So it's pretty interesting. As you, as you say that, I realized I didn't fully answer your question. I knew I was commercial. I've always had a interest in what motivates people. I think the commercial aspect translates to the um, value creation, the uh, proposition creation, thinking through what people would find attractive, uh, appealing, uh, that what they would want to uh, pay for. And all of those come together in marketing. I think it is a, I think they call it a social science. I, I, I don't like the science bit of it, but it's a, it's a subject that is about people. It's about what moves people, what inspires people, what gets them to actually move into action. And that requires a very good listening. It requires curiosity. And I, yeah, I, I definitely bring those to the party. And so I guess when I, when I first encountered marketing, I also for the first time felt this is something where I can be myself. And that's why I love marketing. Yeah, no, I, I love it. Love it. Well, let's talk about the Institute for Real Growth. When and how did you get that started? Okay, so the Institute for Real Growth is, is just over a year old, but the work that went into it 
is yet another year beyond that. And um, if you give me permission, I'll go back a little further. So we were indeed, after Unilever, I, um, I met this guy called Frank Vandendriest in the early uh, 2000s. In fact, just before. We started corresponding. I was on sabbatical from Unilever. We started corresponding about uh, creating a company together. And um, we just decided in the end to do it. We actually, uh, during the sabbatical, my wife and I had bought an Airstream trailer, you know, those silver ones. And we'd spent six months traveling across the U.S. and all of Mexico, actually. It was um, still the best uh, time of my life. And Frank and I were uh, faxing, would you believe it, ideas um, across the ocean. He was uh, in Holland. And finally, we said, you know what, we just need to meet up and we need to spend a few days together and decide whether we're going to do this or not. Because he had a job and I had a job to go back to at Unilever. And he came over and we actually drove the Airstream from um, the Texas border with Mexico all the way across the country, on the East Coast, that is, all the way across the country to California where we were going to store it. And in those um, four or five days, we, we decided to create a company called Effective Brands. And what very quickly um, happened was that we, 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 we kind of found a problem that needed solving. And it was a problem owned by people we cared about. In this case, it was the uh, first appointed global brand director of Dove Worldwide. Dove, the brand, this was Sylvia Lagnado. She's a brilliant marketer. She's the founder of the whole campaign for real beauty, debunking the myth of real beauty. I think it was recently announced as the most effective campaign of the last 30 years. So this lady has a lot of uh, performance behind her name. In fact, I'm interviewing her uh, for the Institute for Real Growth. But she, she looked at me and she said, Mark, she knew I was considering doing this. She said, I, I know everything about building global brands, but what I don't know anything about is how to build a global brand organization, the how. She was great at the what, she didn't know about the how. And, uh, and Frank and I, in our naivety, said, we're going to find out how to do that. We're going to learn from the best, we'll come back to you, and you'll be our first client. And that's literally how Effective Brands was created. And what we subsequently did is something that we're still doing, which is we reached out to about 25 global brand heads that we could find and said, look, we're working for Dove. They're not a competitor of yours. And they'd like to learn what it takes to win in this role that you have. And if you promise us one hour of honesty in confidence, we're never going to say to people, oh, well, what they did wrong at GSK was X, Y, and Z. We'll never do that. But if you give us with candor, the things that you wish you'd done on day one, the things that you wish you'd never done, the things that you learned from others, the do's and don'ts, the tales from the trenches, we'll collect the best practices, the common themes overall, and collate those together and bring them back to you for nothing. And the interesting thing was that of the 25 global brand leaders we reached out to at the time, this is 20 years ago, I think one said no. And there's a real insight there because these people were lonely in their role, didn't feel that they could be honest and transparent and, and get the answers they needed from the people around them. And we're really quite positive about the, the prospect of having an intelligent conversation and then learning at the back of it. And that became a process that we've now repeated four times. We ended up in the end, after Dove came many more global brands, and we created something called the global brand, the leading global brand study. And I think in the end, we had interviewed over 3,000 global brand heads. This is a decade later. We wrote a book called The Global Brand CEO. We developed a framework, a model that everybody could apply to their own business. And then we sold consultancy to help them get there if they needed the help. So it was a commercial model, but there was thought leadership and research before that at the beginning. So after a decade of that in 2014, 
we repeated this exercise and called it Marketing 2020. And it was all about how to build a marketing organization, not a global brand organization, but now a whole global marketing organization. And we were very lucky because once we got around to writing up the lessons learned and the best practices to emulate, Harvard Business Review picked up the article and put it on the front cover. That kind of helped. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, but it's funny because it helped us, but it actually helped all our clients too, because they were able to turn to their CFO and their CEO and say, look, don't take my word for it. And don't even take this consultancy's word for it. Read the HBR article. And if that's what you like, I have the people here to help me do that in our organization. So it, was a, it really was a win-win. And um, we obviously, at that point, we interviewed 350 CMOs. And um, the great thing about this is once you've done one and you get a good article, then it becomes easier the second time around and the third time around even easier. So we then repeated it, focused on how to build an insights organization. It was called Insights 2020. And again, Harvard Business Review put us on the front cover. So that helps. So now to answer your question, I'm sorry it's a little long-winded. We also, every time, had done these projects to drive consultancy. There was a commercial model behind it, and, and it's very transparent. We, we found out what it takes to win, and if you needed help in getting there, we would be happy to help you in the areas that we had expertise. We repeated that again just over two years ago and created a, a big program of work called the Initiative for Real Growth, and it was instigated on the inside that lots of CMOs were beginning to feel marginalized within their organization. They were feeling that they had lost reputation and subsequently influence. They were feeling that they were being regarded as functional leaders, but not really as business growth colleagues. And this is not something that you know we picked up anecdotally. I remember very well being um, at the uh, first meeting of the ANA's Global Brand Growth Council in Cannes, and we had about 30 of the biggest CMOs in the world. And we were supposed to be talking about the future of marketing and what our guidance to the advertising industry was going to be because we were in Cannes. But in fact, the first 45 minutes of the meeting felt more like group therapy because here were all these huge leaders. And really, imagine the CMO of Unilever and Proctor sitting cheek to cheek on the couch in this suite that LVMH was hosting. And all the big CMOs were there. And the themes were about losing influence. They were about losing the, the initiative, feeling out of touch with business growth imperatives. And of course, what are we going to do to get back in the driver's seat? And that's when we created the initiative for real growth to really find out what organizations outperform in terms of sustained growth, that is long-term growth, and what the role of the marketer in those organizations is. And when we had finished that work, the only difference to the previous three or four times was that we didn't feel like going out and selling consultancy to help people do that. In fact, our company had been sold to WPP, as you mentioned, and we turned first to Martin Sorrow and then to Mark Reed and said, look, what all of these CMOs have told us is that they are very open to learning. They really want to together design the future. But what they don't like about all the other places where CMOs gather or where this how to win gets discussed is that either the meetings are so short that the discussions are so shallow, they're almost worthless, or they're hosted by a consultancy, be it McKinsey, BCG, or any other, who's trying to sell them something at the back end, which quite frankly was what we'd been doing over the last 10 years because we had consultancy to offer. And that clouds everybody's perception of what you're sharing as best practices. So our value prop 
to Mark Reed was, will you support the creation of a platform that doesn't sell anything, that's actually independent, but that brings together leaders to talk about how marketing helps the business grow. And you'll be one of the founders. You'll be a participant. You'll be a leader in the industry, but we'll bring a few other players in to co-lead that with you so that everyone knows that nothing is being sold to them. And to Mark Reed's credit, he jumped on it and said, yes, absolutely. If you can find people to fund the other half of this folly of yours, then I'm in. And we were very lucky because within, I think it was two, three weeks, we had Google, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Kantar all taking uh, their part of the equation. And so that's where we are now. It's an independent institute. We convene CMOs and we have a leadership program that we can talk about later. But what we do is we connect those CMOs and other senior growth leaders to benchmarking, research, best practices, experts, but most importantly, other practitioners around the themes of real growth. Gotcha. How, I mean, it's phenomenal to get that launched. I love the mission, if you will, to educate and to create a platform for best practices and learning among your peers in a non-selling environment. I think that's key. How's it been going? I mean, you've been, it's a year on. It seems like you're doing some really interesting work, but how's it going in general? Well, it's a great time to ask the question because our class of 2020 graduated last week. So let me give you a really honest assessment. So what the founding partners, the ones I listed uh, before, did was um, first we surrounded ourselves with a few other knowledge partners that we felt were needed to round out the program and to make sure that we had the content that was going to be unparalleled for a CMO considering whether to participate in this program or not. So we got NYU, we got Oxford University, we got Exeter, the leadership uh, group, we got Spencer Stewart, the headhunters and a few other organizations to join us in the coalition of uh, the Institute for Real Growth. That's first. It's all about who's on the bus. We then developed a program that was totally uh, shaped around the backbone of the findings of the research, the Initiative for Real Growth. In other words, we identified seven building blocks for what it takes to drive multi-year, multi-stakeholder growth, what we actually call humanized growth. And we developed a curriculum that was uh, three times two days in person, and then COVID hit. We had done the recruitment, and 100 CMOs had been invited to participate. The first 80 made it to either the first one or the first two in-person meetings. And I have to tell you, they were incredible. They were in New York City and in Oxford. And um, the average evaluation across all those modules was a 4.8 out of 5. So we're very proud of that. That's when COVID struck. And what we had to do, we still had one cohort, the Shanghai-based group. They hadn't started. They were supposed to start in March. And what we had was groups in all three cities, New York, Shanghai, and Oxford, working towards one final shared event in the two days before Cannes, about 10 miles away from Cannes, actually. And obviously, with one fell swoop, all of that got deleted. So we had to pivot our program almost overnight to an online program. And um, depending on whether they had been to one or two or zero sessions of two days in person, people had to now uh, transition to a seven, 15, or 22 online sessions program. And we did that. And I'd love to say that everybody stayed on board. That's not true. Some people had businesses that were very adversely affected by COVID. Uh, One I'm thinking of now is the CEO 
of um, Wagamama, the restaurant chain in uh, in England. Incredible, high flying former marketer CEO. Her business was fighting for survival, and she said, "As much as I love the program, I have to prioritize the survival of my business and the, I think four thousand employees." So net net, last week we had over eighty percent of the original participants that had registered graduate over 80 percent attended over 80 percent of the content so we're very proud of that we think that that that's actually uh, gone very well and the evaluations uh, are now in we've just created some um, some videos to promote registration for next year's program which starts in november and um, yeah the endorsements from participants are um, not just positive they're actually uh, they're almost emotional in some cases we've really helped people in influencing their organizations. And many of them are doing this on a daily basis, but um, the response has been tremendous. Well, what brought me, frankly, to you, uh, we've crossed paths before, but what brought me back to you was your humanizing growth series, the interview series that you're doing, webcast series. And it's some phenomenal conversations talking about what you just described a minute ago, which is your humanized growth and your approach to that. Could you tell me a little bit, tell listeners, frankly, a little bit more about humanizing growth series and the theme's not the right word, but the conversations that you're having. Yeah. So indeed, in my um, rather long-winded, I now realize, introduction to the Institute for Real Growth, I told you that we focused on what it takes to win without really clearly spelling out what the answer was. COVID and actually the subsequent um, inequality crisis that we've had, particularly here in the US, but all around the world, I know, have only pronounced the uh, importance of what actually the Institute for Real Growth stands for. Our research, and by the way, if you don't like us or you don't know us and you need other research, similar research from BCG, Morgan Stanley, McKinsey, and I can keep going, shows very, very clearly that the companies that let go of what we call shareholder primacy. In other words, the only thing we care about is that our shareholders make money and actually transition that to an orientation of value creation for all stakeholders, their colleagues, their customers, the communities they serve within. They actually outperform for their shareholder returns. In other words, it's putting the donkey or the cart in front of the donkey when you make the goal to make profit. And the reality is that's not where business comes from. Businesses were created by founders that wanted to make a difference in their community. And the story is always the same. At some point, the founder leaves and a CFO takes over, or for some other way reason, the market gets too much influence. And in fact, the short-term representatives of the market get too much influence. Remember, 75% of the market is actually your pension and my pension, our 401ks. We don't need that two years from now. We need that 20 years from now. We want long-term returns for those invested funds. But it's always the short-term ones, the activist investors that are loudest, shout and demand uh, short-term gutting of, uh, of organizations. Look what happened with um, Kraft Heinz, the removal of all innovation work and so forth. And basically, that hurts companies. It hurts the people in companies. It hurts the people around companies. It hurts the communities around companies. And so the conclusions from the Initiative for Real Growth, we're very clear. The companies that focus on total multi-stakeholder value creation and do that with a long-term perspective, they win. So what the program of IRG is about is to help CMOs and other growth leaders explain that to the rest of the organization. Because the reality is that in most organizations, people either 
acknowledge that or not even that, but they don't live by it. And so what we help these CMOs do is to understand how to win consensus around. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This learning, and then how to influence the organization towards a strategy that truly is multi-stakeholder based. And all I can say is when COVID struck, everybody turned to us and said, this makes it even more important because from one day one to the other, it wasn't the investors that companies were talking about. I think quite frankly, in 2020, most companies have, be, have been given a whole pass for results. I mean, it's, it's so disastrous. It almost doesn't matter again if, uh, whether your results are down 60% or 50. I mean, who, who knows, right? It's so bad. So. The orientation wasn't on shareholder return the day after COVID struck. It was on our colleagues safe. Can we connect with each other? Can we do what we are coming here together to do? And what is the community needing from us? What are we saying? How are we engaging? So from day one to the other, the orientation swapped to the other two stakeholders. Now that was COVID and hopefully we'll move out of that into a new reality. But I think there aren't very many leaders around the world now that don't realize that the new reality is going to have to be a far more balanced equation of value creation, yes, for shareholders, but also for our colleagues and our communities and our customers. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And I think many of the guests that I've had on the show, we've talked around these issues, maybe not as directly as you've put it, and as sharp, frankly, as focus as you have on it. But we have, I think, as a, as a global business community, reached a saturation point with profit maximization. And if we don't change, I fear additional conflict, tension, cultural movements that while in many ways are needed, it's not helping us sometimes get as fast to the end point as we all want. And I think companies, to your point, can take a lead role in making sure that value creation is happening for all, not just one segment of the population. So I applaud your efforts. It's so true, Alan. I mean, um, if you look back, I mean, literally going back 100 years, you had... Um, Unilever in the north of England, which was a pretty dangerous place to live at that time, creating a village with healthcare and childcare and education. And, you know, some people uh, sort of snuff at that and say, yeah, those Europeans. No, Hershey was doing exactly the same thing right here. And uh, as was Sony in Japan, you know, this is, uh, Sony was a little later, by the way, but still, my point is businesses were created in communities, with communities. That's where we came from, and we lost our way. Somewhere in the, in the 70s when uh, Friedman said, uh, all we should do is create shareholder value and not break the law. So you're right. Over the last, I think, 20 years now, the 
there's been this louder and louder voice, not just from outside business, but inside business, where people are saying, you know, starting with Bill Gates in Davos, um, I think it was 2008, where he was asking for, uh, you know, a more, more um, what did he call it, um, caring capitalism. Uh, you look at Mark Benioff, you look at what BlackRock has asked for. And the Business Roundtable, the top 200 CEOs of the world, they responded. Less than a year ago, they came back and they rewrote the purpose of the company. They rewrote the purpose and said it's about multi-stakeholder growth. Little did they know that COVID was coming down the line as well as the social unrest. And if you add that to the mix of the Edelman Trust Barometer that keeps telling us louder and louder every year that our employees want our companies to stand for something. They want CEOs to speak up about things that have nothing to do with the fact that we're making widgets. They just think companies should play a bigger role. And as does society. And you bring all of those together, it means that actually there is a huge opportunity to now actually craft business strategies that deliver against that. And that's difficult. And we think marketers can play a big role there because what we're good at as marketers is understanding the underlying needs and wants of all stakeholders. We usually apply it to customers, but we can also apply it to our colleagues. We can apply it to the communities we're part of. What's important to you? Why are people doing this? Why are they saying that? And what can we do that creates value in their minds? You know, that shared value, as um, Harvard University started talking about uh, about a decade ago, Porter, to his credit. So it's a very exciting time. Something needs to change. And we think marketers can play a big role in making that change happen. Awesome. One question for you. Why not focus on CEOs? Why the focus on marketers? What do you feel is special about marketers? It's a very fair question. And um, to start with a caveat, um, I don't know if you've heard of uh, the Imagine organization, but Paul Pullman, the former CEO of Unilever, who really paved the way for what we were just talking about as a company 10 years ago, when his uh, new CEO ship was announced, the first thing he said was, we're not delivering quarterly profit projections anymore. Because it's costing us so much time to run through that rat race of projected profits, it's taking us away from running our business. So instead of doing that four times a year, we're going to do it once a year. And Wall Street hated it. 8% decline in Unilever's share on the day that he said it. So it was not a popular conversation. Now, 10 years later, they outperformed all their peers. They have a very healthy company. And I think, quite frankly, many companies are scrambling to catch up with them. They didn't do everything great, but there was a lot there to learn from. So we had him as one of the guests in the Humanizing Growth series. He has built an organization based on the insight that when a CEO believes this is the right thing to do, it's still difficult to move, not just because of the internal resistance and perhaps the resistance among shareholders, but also because if one company does it, but the other main competitors don't, they're just going to get hurt. They're going to lose because they become less competitive. So what his insight is that you need to do that as industry coalitions. And he has big initiatives now. I think he's the, uh, the chairman of the International Chamber of Commerce, and he's also the chair of the UN's business committee. And he's bringing together first fashion and now food to just improve that at an industry level. My honest answer is, I don't have the expertise and the experience, nor does Frank, and nor do most of the people that we work with to influence CEOs on that process. Our sweet spots, our experience, our in-depth and personal connections, quite frankly, are with the CMO. Now, if you add to that, that CMOs are typically the people within companies that help inspire and build awareness around the company purpose, are typically the people that if you look at a boardroom, 
who's the person that you know stands out as the the storyteller the the inspirator the the energizer of the company it's typically not the cfo it's typically the cmo that plays that role so it's not just a coincidence that you know our background is with cmos and therefore we're focusing on them. No, we think that if, when the CEO looks around the room and says, who's going to help me deliver this shared growth concept, this shared value and multi-stakeholder, that's, you know, those things have to tie together. The stories we tell communities have to tie together with the stories that we tell our employees and the stories that we tell our customers. They have to be true. They have to inherently come from the same place. So either that becomes a full-time job for the CEO which you could argue they should do, but they are usually spending most of their time with the outside audiences and typically investors. They are looking for help in the boardroom, and we think it's the CMO that has uh, is the prime candidate for making a difference there. Got it. How does an executive, if Mark CMO is listening to this, <laughs> how how do they get engaged with the uh, Institute for Real Growth? Oh, well, that's easy. No, it's a, it's a good question, of course. So instituteforrealgrowth.com not only describes what we stand for, but it also is a, um, a platform where we share a lot of the thought leadership that we uh, and the research that we've gathered. The public-facing interviews that we have featured on our webinars and podcasts and newsletters and so forth. But it also includes a whole section around the Real Growth Leadership Programme. And the Real Growth Leadership Program is for 100 CMOs and growth leaders that are either a C-suite member in uh, companies up to 5 billion or a C-suite minus one if the company is bigger than that. So for example, this year we had the, uh, the head of the household cleaning division of Unilever, the overall leader. He had a $7 billion business. He was a participant, as was the head of baby food for Nestle worldwide, but also the CMO for uh, Regis, the uh, WeWork competitor, or the CEO of Bose, the headphones and speakers, uh, CMO, I should say, sorry. So we had a good mix of very senior people and if your listeners are part of that group, they can go to instituteforrealgrowth.com and go to the Real Growth Leadership Program tab. And there's, a, there's an application for the program. What people are signing up for is a six-month program that, again, because of COVID, this time will be 25 sessions online starting in November. They're 90-minute sessions, and uh, they are very hands-on. They're very two-way interactive peer-to-peer connection, peer-to-expert connection sessions. And we run through the whole curriculum of the Institute for Real Growth. And then we round it off with an in-person meeting in Cannes next year, the two days before the Cannes Festival really kicks off. And uh, so the application goes through the website. Knowing that we only are able to cater with such an intensive program for 100 leaders worldwide, we're now also um, working very hard to create for the next thousands interested leaders an online program, which is fully online and will still include significant interactivity, but not weekly sessions that we will be facilitating. And um, that program is to be announced in September. But so watch this space. It will be announced again through our newsletters uh, for which you can register at the instituteforrealgrowth.com. Awesome. What are you guys building to? I, I know this is a, almost a philanthropic and educational institute, if you will. What's your end goal? Well, when we were doing the evaluation of the program this year among the, let's say, 80, 78 CMOs that were still on the journey with us, we asked them in the last session to focus on the impact that they had achieved already with the help of the Institute and to define the impact that they set themselves as a goal for the end of this year and the end of next year. 
when I listened and when I read the responses to the impact that they have already made, it was humbling. I'll give you one example. Uh, we had in our program, and uh, you can actually see who the participants were if you go to uh, our website and look at the IRG 100 participants. They're all featured. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little bit uh, coy here in the description so you can't decipher exactly who it was. But it was a leader in a major energy company who described how when COVID struck, the board had said, do you mind if we actually scrap the time allotted to marketing for the next few weeks so we can focus on the emergency of COVID? And uh, the person agreed because it felt the right thing to do and actually came back on that and said, no, I want to use the time to give what I've learned is happening here. And most importantly, what I think should inform how we react to what's going on around us. And the person told us that for all of those sessions that they got back and claimed back, they used IRG materials and it truly shaped that energy organization's response to what's happening today and now. Now, if I put on top of that, the impact that people are describing they think they will have achieved by the end of this year and aim to achieve by the end of next year, it's truly humbling, as I said before. But it's 100 leaders or 88. Next year, we intend to have done work with Imagine and at least 10 CEOs through the Institute for Real Growth with 100 CMOs. And through the democratized program that I mentioned to you before, with at least a thousand other growth leaders, we may do that together with uh, Fast Company, the magazine. And our goal, quite frankly, is to keep that effect in a multiplication mode, because this is what the world needs. It's what we need, it's what our consumers need, it's what our communities need, and it's actually what companies need to be successful. So the more places we can help make that happen, the prouder we will be of our small very small contribution in that change. Well, Mark, I'm really excited to watch this unfold, frankly, and um, an open offer. If I can be helpful to you, let me know. I, I love what you're building. I love the passion behind it as well. Well, I appreciate that. I think you're doing it now. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Yeah. It takes a village and uh, we will partner with anyone that um, shares the same conviction. Uh, so I, I very much appreciate being invited on your show. I think it, uh, it speaks uh, very clearly and has a tremendous reputation among an audience that we feel is important. So uh, I look forward to collaborating further with you in the future. That's great. Well, before I let you go, I do want to switch gears. And we always like to ask a number of questions of the people behind the microphone, if you will, so to get to know you a little bit, even on a more personal level. And one of my favorite questions to ask is, is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? Ha, it's funny. I'm, I'm going to combine it with something else, which is I have grown up always having the benefit of huge shoulders to stand on. I have had incredible mentors. Uh, to this day, I have people that I speak to sometimes only once every six months, but at least that, and then and, and often more often. And it's not always when I want it, but they come anyway. <laughs> and they give me the advice that they think I need to hear. And that has truly shaped my life. I remember the conversation where an uncle who doesn't live anymore told me to go to which university and why. And I remember discussing marketing. And I, discussed, I remember discussing where I would start my career and so many other conversations. And it really is about building on the uh, love, care, experience, and expertise of many, many people that have gone before us. 
Well, what advice would you give your younger self starting all over again? Ask more questions. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Somewhere, I don't remember. Well, actually, I do remember one very serious conversation where I had just become a consultant. And I honestly lived a life where I thought people were paying me an inordinate amount of money to give them answers. And it was at some conference, it was in the green room before we went on stage, and there was a guru sitting in the room with me who treated me so kindly and like a peer where really he was the guru and I was the baby. And he looked at me and I think we were drinking a glass of wine and he said, isn't it funny how there's still a lot of people that think they need to have the answer instead of asking the right question. And for me, looking at him, I was trying not to show the shock in my face. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to have the answer. <laughs> it was like a new world opened up. It's all about the questions, not the answers. <laughs> I love it. Well, uh, kind of a silly question, but I've, I've liked the answers I've gotten recently. So I, I'll ask you, what's the most impactful purchase that you've made, say, $100 or less uh, within the last six to 12 months? Wow. Actually, I'm looking at it. It's this microphone. I never, ever did podcasts, webinars, or Zoom conferences until COVID struck. I mean, literally, Skype uh, didn't work. It was a world that has opened up to me. We will never go back to where we were. And uh, the microphone, which is a, a Rhoda, if I can make some advertising, has served me very well. And uh, it is uh, under $100, and it's changed the way I work. I love it. Yeah. It's amazing what sound can do. <laughs> well, uh, last two questions for you. You've named a lot of brands already, but I'm curious if there's any brands or companies or causes that you feel like other sh people should be taking notice of right now or that you follow on a personal level. Wow. There's a lot of people bad talking Amazon, especially now and especially around obviously how it sounds like they didn't react in the right way when uh, they're warehouse workers uh, were complaining about unsafe conditions. And there's no excuse for that, of course. At the same time, it's a very, very young company. And the success they've had, the focus that they have on making our world better is so impressive to me that I, um, I have to keep correcting myself and reminding myself to support my local businesses because I want to, to buy a book at the local bookstore because I want those people to succeed. But the honest truth is most often they're ordering it online and I'm waiting for them to receive it so that I can go pick it up. And so, so much. The fact that Amazon buys into this, um, I think it's a, it's, it's a mission of theirs to understand that we as consumers, we will now forever be in unsatisfied because what's happening at the moment is that in every category someone figures it out and it is often amazon by the way figures out how it can be done better and then we as consumers expect that type of solution from everyone and i think that they will continue to do that but at the same time i i, I have to be honest the socialist uh, you know i'm from europe and uh, it's, I'm not a red card carrying socialist, but there are socialist principles embedded in my DNA that are about caring for each other and not playing unfairly. And the stories around uh, Amazon watching small businesses succeed and then just replicating what they do for a few pennies less, those are totally unacceptable, of course. But it doesn't mean that you then walk away from a company. I think to learn from, to watch Amazon is one. Then I mentioned them earlier in the conversation. I was very proud to be part of the creation and the rollout of Dove Real Beauty 20 years ago. And I was especially proud to see that because 
their purpose is so deeply ingrained. They were so fast to move. They didn't have to talk to each other about what are we going to do. They didn't get need to get permission on can we speak up. They just did it because that's what they stand for. And their Courageous Heroes campaign, what was it, two, three weeks after COVID struck, made me cry. And it made me proud. Love it. Last question for you. What do you feel like is the either largest opportunity or threats that marketers face today? Well, with that, if you don't mind, I I will try and summarize our conversation. The threat is irrelevance. If you are the marketer that has grown up in the era of digital and has obsessed to the point of irrelevance around performance marketing and somehow think that we can performance marketing ourselves to success, you've got it wrong because performance marketing requires creativity first to build assets and messages and communication that people want to watch. And I think the first message is don't think data gives you everything. It's data with humans that gets to insights and solutions. That's the first. And secondly, if you're a marketer that thinks it's about communication, but you've forgotten that it isn't just about how to win, but it's also about where to play. What business are we in? What business should we be in? What's the next business that we're going to go in? Because that's where the consumer's mind, that consumer that's forever dissatisfied, wants to go. Well, then we need to go there. And your sales director, your CFO, your CEO need to respect you as a business leader, not a functional leader. We do our marketing in service of a business strategy. And our KPIs need to ladder up to the business KPIs. So at least we need to be at par with those as business partners. And then to end with the opportunity, we now, very uniquely now, have an opportunity because everyone's listening. Everybody is revisiting the strategy. No one will tell you they have all the answers. What an opportunity to come back and say, here's how we build a strategy that drives long-term growth. And we do it by recognizing the human aspect of our customers, our colleagues, our communities, and the capital markets. That's when we drive value, the type of value that investors like, but also the type of value that we can talk to our kids about, our parents about, and that makes us feel purposeful in life. That's the opportunity. Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're very welcome, and I really thank you for the invitation. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Marketing Today.